We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host, Nick Pilato. Over the last week since we've done this, the Giants have a new defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham, a new offensive coordinator, Jason Garrett, and several new position coaches, including one I'm pretty excited about, quarterbacks coach Jerry Shaplinski. Hoping I'm pronouncing those names correctly. Time will tell. Let's dive into all this news right now, Nick. But before that, I want to wish you a happy birthday, buddy. Tell us a little bit about your birthday last night uh, and any interesting stories that came from it. Nah, man, it was pretty uh, cut and dry. It was a it was a fun little thing. I had a party a while ago, a little surprise party that my family threw through me, and they totally caught me aloof, which really pisses me off because I feel like I'm on top of things. Obviously, not enough. <laughs> Fair enough, and I, I guess my invite must have got lost in the email. Yeah, you don't know my older brother. Probably he's the <laughs> one who organized it all. <laughs> anyway, happy birthday, Nick! Thanks, now bro. it's time to talk some Giants football because that's what we're here for, and that's what the people want. So. You did a really good job diving deep into our new defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham, somebody who, you know, coordinated that Dolphins defense last year, but really is a bit unknown, comes from that Patriots system of coaching, that coaching tree. Uh, what can you tell us about what his defense might look like with the Giants? And then I've got a few questions kind of get us started there. So first and most important to me would be, how do you think his defense will differ from what we've seen from James Betcher's Giants defense over the last two seasons? So his defense is a little bit more simpler than James Betcher's, whereas we talked about a lot on this podcast, James Betcher utilized a lot of pattern match kind of coverages, which is derived from the old Rip Liz that Nick Saban and Belichick kind of devised when they were with the Cleveland Browns to defeat the vertical passing attack of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So Betcher's defenses, those were so complicated in the sense that everything was 
I, I brought up on this podcast based off positioning of the wide receivers and certain leverages of the cornerbacks. And it was all about where they were on the field. And these cornerbacks just did not – these young cornerbacks just did not understand that leverage. And that's why we saw so many mistakes early on in the season with where they were supposed to cover, which person they were supposed to take. And just offensive coordinators abuse the Giants – secondary because of that because of the youth because of the complications of the defense I don't believe that's going to be the case with Patrick Graham's defense it's just a little bit more simplified than the than the uh, defense of James Betcher but it's still similar in the light that I saw a lot of the middle of the field closed a lot of cover one cover three so there's middle of the field close that's when it safety at the middle of the field and there's middle of the field open. That's like cover two kinds of defenses when the middle of the field is wide open. I would say Patrick Graham was majority of middle of the field close. That's kind of similar to James Betcher. And I don't believe Patrick Graham is going to bring as much pressure as James Betcher. didn't seem like that with the Dolphins. I mean, he wasn't afraid to bring five plus sometimes, but Betcher was kind of known, especially coming from Arizona, as that attacking pressure type of defensive coordinator, whereas Patrick Graham, I feel like, was a little bit more conservative. But again, I feel like when you have to look at these coordinators, just because they did that in the past doesn't mean they're going to do it now, because a lot of things are predicated on their personnel, and that's how they can kind of scheme their defense. So he's going to have a totally different defense here with the New York Giants, so things could change a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting you mention that, because I mean, I think the hope for any Giants fan or any fan of any team when they hire a new coaching staff is that what you see in the past is not what you're going to get exactly in the future because the sign of any good coaching staff can be boiled down, at least in my opinion, and I know you agree with me on this, in adjusting to the personnel rather than having the personnel try to fit your scheme. That's the old, you know, don't try to fit a square peg into a round hole type of, you know, argument or whatever you want to call that. But with the Giants, now coming over, I think he's going to have an opportunity to kind of evolve his system to the players he has and come up with something that will be his own and will be Patrick Graham's 2020 defense with the New York Giants, not a version of Patrick Graham's 2019 version of the Dolphins taken to the Giants. So I think that's important. I think it's interesting you mentioned the pressure because that's kind of a staple with where he comes from with New England. You know, they're not known for heavy blitz packages and teams that, and, and, and they're not known as a team. The Dolphins weren't last year. The Patriots in the past team that blitzes a lot. But it's funny because James Betcher had that reputation, Nick, but we didn't see it much with the Giants really at all. He really didn't blitz as much as we thought he would. His pressure coming from the from the Cardinals was he was, a, they were a heavy pressure team. They sent a lot of blitzes and that just didn't seem to be the case often enough for the Giants. Maybe that was just, a product of the talent he had, the personnel he had with the Giants, he didn't feel comfortable to do it. Um, that personnel should be improving this offseason, as both me and you agree. Priority needs to be on the defense side of the ball. As desperate as things may seem at the offensive tackle position and center position, maybe, they need to really improve that defense. Um, one thing I was curious about, because this is kind of how I you know, look at the differences in coordinators, how do they use their safeties? We obviously saw with Betcher, a lot of different looks with the safety, not as much single high as I expected. What do you think uh, Graham will do from that standpoint? And kind of what defense did you see him use the most or what coverage did you see him use the most back there? Well, back there, I saw a lot of cover, just cover one. Like I said, single high, middle of the field, right. closed kind of things. When he did drop in the zone, it was usually typically like a cover three type of look, just kind of closing the middle of the field. Sometimes he did go cover two. It's not like he was adverse to that, but he would have cover two as well. Uh, when it, his usage of Minka Fitzpatrick early 
earlier in the year, I know, took some criticism. And I know uh, Fitzpatrick wanted to leave because he felt like I think he was in the box a lot for the Miami Dolphins. And he wanted to kind of play safety, more of a traditional safety role. And he really wanted out of Miami. So he definitely was not being utilized the way he wanted to be utilized. I didn't really dive too deep into the early, earlier games. I was watching a lot of the later games. Like I watched one game earlier in the season of Patrick Graham when he was trying to find his way as a defensive coordinator, essentially. I wanted to see him as a little bit more experienced. But, uh, yeah, just a lot of single high type of uh, things. And another, like, really uh, interesting thing about Patrick Graham that I noticed was just kind of how he utilized his line. I don't know if you wanted to add anything onto the safety before I dive into how he uh, tackled, like, the line in certain situations. No, you can go for it, Nick. Yeah. Yeah, so – he on third and five plus he would regularly line up with one lineman and this was like third and five sometimes even third and four one lineman with roving linebackers that were never really stationary so I was looking at the Giants roster I'm like I can see him doing something totally different because he has Leonard Williams BJ Hill Dalvin Tomlinson this Dexter Lawrence the strength of the Giants is at that line position and the weakness of the Giants is at the linebacker and edge. And he would line up with like four linebackers, sometimes five linebackers, edges just roving, and then one defensive lineman. And I think that was interesting. A lot of other – he employed a lot of odd fronts, a lot of even fronts. So that means three linemen, four linemen, two linemen, things along those lines. Nose tackle, sometimes not a nose tackle, sometimes two, three techniques, sometimes two, two techniques. So it, situationally, he definitely – had a very open way to employ his defensive line. He wasn't really married to one specific thing. He would have even odd. He would have over under, which means three technique to the strength, three technique to the weakness. He would do all of these different things. So I like the fact that it's very multiple. I mean, you kind of hear that from a lot of these guys coming from the New England system, how they run multiple defensive fronts. He definitely did that a lot. In Miami, so expect a lot of two two techniques, and I'm imagining it would be Dalvin Tomlinson and Dexter Lawrence, and then I'm hoping that this team will bring in some more depth at linebacker. <laughs> Isaiah Simmons, I really think would fit into this defense. Granted, that guy would fit into any defense, but he could really help this defense from what I saw, and uh, just edge prospects. So it's going to be a lot of Lorenzo Carter roving around as well kind of playing the middle linebacker position, which we saw him do a little bit in the James Betcher, and just not being set. Because the way Patrick Graham used Van Ginkle and a couple of those guys who aren't quite the talent of Lorenzo Carter, those guys were kind of just everywhere. And then they were attacked from different angles, used a ton of stunts, a ton of stunts. I'm talking you would bring the defensive end, the end man on the line of scrimmage, all the way around to the middle linebacker with two slanting linemen to kind of suck up three linemen and just have an unblocked defender being the end man on the line of scrimmage. Same with the middle linebacker stunting around to one technique. It would open the center up. The guard would have to take the backside three technique, and then it would just be the middle linebacker who was stunting and the quarterback. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of trickery on the defensive line, which was kind of encouraging to see for sure. Yeah, especially considering we didn't see really much of that with the Giants um, over the past two seasons, really, if you take a look at the All-22, there wasn't much of that. I mean, you, you didn't see too many times where the offensive line was confused by what the Giants were doing on the defensive line. You know, occasionally they hit on a stunt, and that's not to say they didn't do that. But 
some of those are just more basic stunts, at least from my perspective. Can you back it up, though, Nick, a little when you when you talk about using two two texts? What exactly? Let's break that down for someone who might not, you know, any listener who might might have heard that and been like, wow, that went way too fast. Let's let's break down what you mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. So a two technique. Okay, so first off, a zero technique on the defensive line is somebody lined directly over the center. Okay. And then there's one techniques, which is somebody lined on the outside shoulder of the center. Okay. And then a two technique would be directly over the guard, and a three technique would be directly over the outside shoulder of the guard. And basically, it's all just about run fits and gap integrity because. Think about the defense as a puzzle. Every defender has an assignment. They're not just out there playing backyard football. They all have an assignment, a run game assignment, a pass game assignment. So if they, they are running the football, they have a gap that they are responsible for that they cannot allow themselves to be blocked out of or anything along those lines. And in different situations, I saw Patrick Graham kind of employ his – he would have a nose. He would have – two two techs so that would be really tight because you would have a guy right over the center and then a guy right over both the guards so their offense is not going to run the ball inside obviously and then at the snap those guys would do different things they would probably go outside or something and attack the outside shoulder of the guard which means they would be taken care of kind of they would be fanning out so if the offense is running an outside um running outside a halfback stretch or something like that they're not just being sucked up in the middle and kind of just being useless against that certain play. So basically the techniques, that's just – you can look that up on Google if you need to kind of reiterate it. Just type in off or techniques in football, zero tech, one tech, two tech, and it's just a basic guideline. But basically the reason I wanted to bring it up for Patrick Graham is he utilized this in a multiple different ways and in odd even fronts, all those kind of things to kind of just put his defense – make his defense – unpredictable and put his defense in advantageous positions which was definitely encouraging now a lot of defensive coordinators do this but he definitely wasn't married to one type of system of having a nose tackle every time or anything like that he would just he would employ two defensive linemen he would employ three he would employ one a lot so expect a different kind of look from the defense that sounds good to me it sounds like it's not a three yeah Exactly. It's not like a three, four, because like Dan and I get questions all the time. Like, oh, does he run a four or three? Does he run a three, four? That is a very antiquated way to look at defensive coordinators nowadays. You you have to kind of get past that, realize there's a lot of nickel packages. It's a lot of multiple looks. It, just try not to think about it in that Madden type of three, four, four, three way. That's what I always like to say, Nick. The three, four and the four, three, when people go over that, what are we, a four, three? What are we, a three, four? doesn't matter anyway, guys, because at least three fourths of the snaps at this point are being played in sub package. So it's either Nick, either five defensive backs or sometimes six defensive backs. And what it sounds like to me, Nick, and I was, this was going to lead to my next question before we kind of wrap up Graham for now. And that's which kind of players do you think right off the bat will be interesting fits, great fits for the system and maybe might be unlocked by Graham in a way that they weren't with James Betcher. What would be your call for that? And then I'll give you a couple that I think might, you know, take that next leap forward. Well, I just think all the young players will kind of take that next leap forward. So I think naming them is kind of like a an out because I think Dexter Lawrence can thrive in this. We saw Christian Wilkins have a solid season, not quite up to the par of Dexter Lawrence down there. He was his teammate in college. Granted, they are different players. Uh, I do feel that um, Lorenzo Carter is somebody that I'm going to be watching because I feel like he can be utilized in a lot of different ways because of his athletic profile and this is year three for him. Like this is the year that he's kind of got to put it all together. Kind of sucks that he has to learn a new defense. That, that might be a little speed bump there. But he's definitely the player that would 
that I would feel, especially if you pair him with another pass rusher, him and O'Shane, those are two players that I feel like can uh, definitely be utilized in an interesting manner by Patrick Graham. And Zimenez is very, very interesting because he's somebody who can line up in a lot of different ways. He's very athletic. You know, his whole frame, he could still run. He can cover if he needs to in uh, just the hook zone areas. Obviously, you don't want him dropping too far. But I think O'Shane and, and Lorenzo are the two that I would name. Yeah, that's interesting. For me, Nick, I'd probably make the bold prediction that when we have this podcast next season, wrapping up the end of the Giants 2020 season, we'll have seen a really big step forward from DeAndre Baker and Sam Beal, the Giants' young cornerbacks. I really think that they're going to be the ones to benefit most from this changeover. Um, You know, like we talked about, those guys just, especially Baker, just wasn't actually a good fit for what Betcher wanted to do, at least not as a rookie. And now, Coming into his second year, I think he's going to take a massive step forward. I think the way people view Baker now, the Giants fans, is going to be completely different from how they view him after this next season. Um, And on that note, Nick, before we dive into the Giants' other big news from the last week, and that's the hiring of offensive coordinator Jason Garrett, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Ever see an untucked button-down? They look bad. Why? Because they weren't meant to be worn that way. Duh. Thankfully, there's Untuck It, the original button-down shirt, actually designed to be worn untucked. Would you look at that? No matter what your size or shape, Untuck It shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length. With more than 50 plus fit combinations, Untuck It shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. Look, I have friends who have Untuck It, I have Untuck It, and when I want to walk around looking good with my shirt untucked, I always utilize Untuck It because guess what? It works! You look good! Choose from styles like wrinkle-free button-downs, super soft flannels, outerwear, and more. With Untuck It, your shirts will never look baggy, bulgy, too long, or too big again. And their website is so easy to use. They even have a whole page devoted to helping you find your fit. So, whether you're shopping for the perfect gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It is the way to go. Visit UntuckIt.com and use code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's UntuckIt.com and promo code BLUE for 20% off. Don't miss this excellent opportunity to look great with your shirt untucked. All right, Nick, let's pivot to Garrett. What are your initial thoughts on the Giants' decision to hire Jason Garrett, former Dallas Cowboys coach, former New York Giants quarterback, former Dallas Cowboys offensive coordinator, and before that, he was Nick Saban's quarterback coach with Miami Dolphins. Really long tenure of not only playing the quarterback position, but coaching the quarterback position and the offensive side of the ball. What are your thoughts here? Just like we stated with Judge, when Judge was hired, he wanted an experienced coaching staff. Like Dan and I said that we wanted him to have an experienced coaching staff around him. And that's just what Garrett is. I mean, he was the head coach for one of the biggest brands in sports. I mean, maybe for a little bit too long, if we're going to be honest, but he still was. And he has a lot of experience. I hope he can go back to his roots here as a play caller where he had success with Dallas. Remember, he was a hot name back in the 2000s. And that's a little that's kind of a long time ago. But (laughs) he was a hot coordinator name back then. And Garrett. He did help the career of Tony Romo, and he was the head coach when Dak was drafted in the fourth round. We saw Dak's development down there in Dallas. So he's used to developing young talent at the quarterback position, and that has to be the most imperative thing for this NFL franchise. And Garrett's offense with Dallas from 07-2010 as the play caller, it was more of a Don Eric Coriel type of offense, right? 
And we're used to that West Coast type of offense that McAdoo and Shermer had. And let's just go through a quick history lesson, all right? The Air Coriel was an iteration of Sid Gilman's vertical passing attack. And like many NFL greats, Gilman comes from the AFL, and he is kind of thought of as the father of the modern passing game. Gilman was the first coach to kind of utilize geometry to devise route concepts and precision to run routes at the best, most advantageous angles, while using an aggressive play calling style to ensure that every single inch of the field was to be covered by the defense. So he would just maximize the field. Gilman wanted to stretch the field horizontally, vertically, and his passing game set up the run. He was the man to employ a new, he was the man to employ that numeric system for routes. And what I mean by numeric system is that each route is assigned a number. Nine route means go, seven a corner, etc. But there's not always a standard to that. So a play call in a Coriel system may sound something like this. It's different from the West Coast. It might be like Sammy Cleveland 386 Y corner. And Sammy is the protection of the line. Five man, six man protection, whatever. Cleveland is just the cadence. It could mean a normal cadence. It could mean a play action, whatever the cadence is. And then 386 are all of the routes. So three receivers, there's three wide receivers on the field, and a three could mean whatever, and a six could mean whatever, and an eight could mean whatever. It doesn't really matter. That's all based on that specific offense. And then the Y corner is just a tight end running a corner route. And Coriel's system was predicated on Gilman's vision and what Gilman did with the Bears, the Rams, and the Oilers, I want to say. And Don Coriel's Chargers, led by Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow, were just a very potent passing attack in the 80s. And they used a ton of pre-snap motion to enhance concepts and confuse defense while trying to force mismatches for Winslow to just kind of eat the defense alive. And that's kind of... What I hope Garrett can really uh, hone in on with Evan Ingram and Saquon Barkley because, I mean, we criticized Pat Shermer so much in the past for not doing that. So I really hope he kind of utilizes that. And I saw it when I was watching film on Jason Garrett. I went back and I went to 2010 and the All-22 wouldn't load up. I was watching the I was watching a Redskins game and I'm watching it on the broadcast angle and he he did do that and he utilized Jason Witten in a lot of cool ways as well. He put him in the backfield. He would put him at tight end. Obviously, he would split him out wide. So I'm hoping that he could do that with Evan Ingram, utilize Saquon Barkley in the way that he deserves to be utilized, and then um, just get the most out of these weapons while also employing the power run game, which I felt like he did a lot of a lot of power runs. That's gap style runs. That's there's one design gap. The linemen are pulling around a lot of pin pull kind of concepts. It's something that we're not really used to seeing with Shermer. Shermer was really not strictly, but almost strictly inside zone. So those are the uh, things that uh, I'm interested in with Garrett. Another thing though, before we dive into it and uh, is an interesting part of this whole equation is the fact that he loves big X type receivers, a la Miles Austin, a la Dez Bryant. And I'm hoping that Slayton can kind of fill that role and the Giants don't use that number four pick on Jerry Judy as much as I love Jerry Judy as a prospect. I feel like it would be a luxury item. And uh, I don't know if that would uh, be the best way for the Giants to uh, really build this roster into a championship caliber roster. But yeah, those are just some of my quick notes on Jason Garrett. I I think you could do a lot worse than Jason Garrett. I know a lot of people are against it because he, people are just, you know, oh, people talk about the Giants uh, in such a negative light that anything the guy does or anything the team does is just going to suck. And I feel like that's absolutely ridiculous. This is a Princeton grad. He's a smart guy. He didn't work out. That's the way it is. But um, I'm fine with the hire. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, Nick. Let me start with the top. I wouldn't worry too much about the reaction to this. The reaction to this is based on kind of 
you know, hit the end of his tenure with the Dallas Cowboys as a head coach, but the Giants aren't hiring him to be their head coach. They're hiring him to be their offensive coordinator, and it's a very different job. He will be the head coach of the offense, but he doesn't have to worry about Ezekiel Elliott spending extra time in Cabo and pulling up the shirt of girls in public and whatever else he was getting suspended for. Um, he doesn't have to worry about those kind of things. He doesn't have to worry about roster management of the 53 men. There's so many little things that go into being a head coach that he no longer has to concern himself with. All he has to concern himself with is making this Giants offense the best it can be. And by the way, his overall record as a coach in Dallas was pretty damn good, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, it's not like they're like firing like the worst. Co- it's not like they're bringing in Pat Shermer after his Cleveland years. Or anything like that. Um, now, as far as the hire goes, I think there are some serious pluses here. For starters, Joe Judge has never coached an NFL game in his life. He's a special teams coordinator who just got promoted last year to coach the offensive side of the ball. The first time he coached any side of the ball. So having somebody like Garrett become the head coach of his offense, and don't kid yourself, he will be the head coach of that offense. I don't see Joe Judge having much of any impact really on the offensive side of the ball. I think he's going to hand the keys over to Garrett. And I think that, that was part of the deal that they made together. And obviously with the Giants brass involved in those discussions and those meetings, they said, listen, I know it's going to be tough to get you to come out of being a head coach, to being a coordinator, but you're going to run this offense. So let's start by saying that there will be little things that will be helped by having a guy with his experience in as an offensive coordinator. That's what the Giants wanted. That's what they needed when they hired a guy like Judge. All that's good. Now, what system will we bring over? For a while, you know, you dove into it there, Nick, and we could speculate on it, but it's tough to say because we just don't know if he's going to just blank. We can't make a blanket statement that he's going to bring over that Coriolis-based offense that he had in Dallas. And remember, a few things to note about this offense. This Coriolis-based offense has some serious upside. Like you said, it features and it utilizes and it gets the tight end position in really good spots. So that could unlock a potential breakout season for a couple guys that we're excited about. Evan Ingram, who really hasn't been used vertically down the seam at all in his Giants career. He could become a serious vertical threat with 4-4 speed if he can stay healthy in this offense. Caden Smith, a guy we became really excited about, has really good movement skills, lateral movement, catches everything that was thrown his way, had his good connection with Daniel Jones, as we saw at the end of the season. He could become a weapon. He could become something that defenses have to scheme around, and that could open up things for Barkley. Another thing you said, Nick, that really intrigues me, that the Giants will start to use more pin-pull concepts on the offensive run blocking in the run-blocking game, more power concepts, because that fits Will Hernandez a lot better than the zone scheme. Now, yes. Kevin Zeitler's probably better fit for a zone-blocking scheme, but Kevin Zeitler, to me, strikes me as someone who could play in either system. And he played at Wisconsin. That's where he comes from. And Wisconsin is a predominantly power blocking gap scheme, uh, run blocking off or just offensive line in general. Um, that's what they've had for years there. And that's what they had during his years there. So I don't think that will be any kind of issue at all. And as we know, Nick, this offensive line is still a work in progress. There will be pieces added, whether that be via free agency, different rounds in the draft. This offensive line we see now is not what it's going to be week one of the 2020 season. So that excites me. It also leads to the possibility of bringing in Bill Callahan as the offensive line coach, someone who has experience with a lot of those pin-pull, power, run-blocking concepts. Now, as far as Callahan goes, he has a great relationship with Jason Garrett. Um, He's worked with Garrett in the past, but he's going to be expensive. The Giants are going to have to pay up to get him. And from what I've heard, there's other teams who want Callahan right now, and that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, he's one of the best offensive line coaches in the NFL in general, and he's somehow available. Now, as far as the Coriel system goes, if he does bring that over, Nick, there are some concerns for me. The first would be, you know, if he doesn't think he has, if Jason Garrett doesn't think he has that 
big outside threat at wide receiver to play the X or to play the boundary. Um, because, you know, Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard, these guys aren't big. They're both under six feet, I believe. I'm not sure on Tate, but I'm pretty sure. Even Darius Slayton is not really the biggest wide receiver. He plays pretty big, but he's not actually the biggest wide receiver. So if this means that's their focus, they got to get an outside receiver, I think it's a mistake. But the hope here is that he's not going to try to fit, like we said, fit players to fit, or, or I'm sorry, fit his system around the roster. It's got to be the other way around. Um, so there's some things to be excited about. One thing that would concern me, Nick, um, is that for any Coriel-based system, you need a really good pass-blocking offensive line to let the vertical passing game develop. And I'm not sure the Giants can achieve that this offseason. I'm not a big believer in quick fixes on the offensive line. Whenever somebody, you know, yells at us on Twitter, or, you know, not yells at us, but makes the case on Twitter, the Giants need to draft an offensive tackle at number four, no matter who it is. I always find that so foolish because you can't draft a position. you got to draft a player. Um, and it really sometimes takes a while, if ever, for some of these off college offensive tackles to translate to the NFL because they don't have as many, uh, you know, the, the way that they – the things they're asked to do at the collegiate level from a pass-blocking standpoint – aren't really apples to apples to what they'll be asked to do in the NFL. And I know you, I, I'm pretty sure you agree with me on that. Am I right, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if you they can't, can't, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you can't just say, Hey, I need to get a tackle. That's how you end up with like Robert gallery or something along those lines. And, and like, and the other thing is just that the college game is so different with the spread offenses and, and the pass the pass sets there, the pass blocking sets they have to do it. Some, some of these guys come to the NFL really having done much. Like, you know, I'm watching Andrew Thomas a little bit and I'm seeing this, this this Georgia offensive system and this Georgia offensive, I guess, offense overall kind of hides him a lot. I mean, there's a ton of play action. There's a ton of, you know, just different. There's you very rarely see him kind of in that in that mode where he's just pass blocking set after set uh, play after play. So it's kind of just just little things that can you can you can concern yourself with if you just say if we draft a guy at four, our offensive line will immediately improve. Because I don't think that's a guarantee. But I think for me, Nick, and I want to hear your take on this, the thing that would concern me the most, um, well, there's two things. So let me start with the first one, is that Daniel Jones has really never worked in a system like this at all. And you mentioned it to start, the calls are going to be different. He's going to have to learn a whole new set of actual just calls and, you know, the way that they refer to the play calls. But more importantly, the way he reads the defense might be very different. He might be asked to do something very different from that standpoint. Like we talked about, you know, the Pat Shermer had a really quarterback-friendly offense system, at least in my opinion. A lot of half-field, high-low concepts, which Jones really thrived in. Do you think that Jones can quickly pick it up? How do you, how do you view this transition for a quarterback, I would ask? Yeah, Daniel Jones is a bright kid, and we know that. And you, there's really no way we can be sure if he's going to pick it up. I definitely would say that it is a somewhat of a concern because the Coriel offense oh, – Daniel Jones coming out of the draft, we all thought, and I'm sure you and Tertian talked about this, that if he was going to be a pick, that a Shermer offense was – the kind of offense that he should go to. That's at least what I felt because it is quick timing, West Coast, hit the back foot, release the ball, things along those lines. Hatfield reads it's quarterback friendly, like you said. This offense is much more vertical if it is the Don Coriel offense. I think you did an excellent job kind of articulating that before saying that we're not really 100% sure what we're doing. We're kind of prognosticating a little bit. But if this is a Coriel offense, that's much more of a vertical passing attack. And from that standpoint, I'm not too concerned with Daniel Jones because I saw him release the ball a lot this year down the field and a lot of them were actually really good throws but it's all in the head and we just aren't 100 sure if it will affect his ability to read the defense his ability to make adjustments at the line which is something we talked about was he really doing that 
at a high level this year, or did the offense really allow him to because he was a rookie? Now he has a whole nother offense to come in, a whole nother language to learn, all this other terminology. Yeah, it's definitely a concern. It's not something that would just say, okay, no, we definitely can't do this. No, you have a new offense. He's going to learn it. He's a professional. He's a smart, bright kid. Now it's hope for the best, but to say it's not a concern would be uh, would not be a uh, not be wise. I think it's a slight concern, but it's not something that I'm losing sleep over or anything like that. I just think it might take a little bit of time for him to learn the terminology. And by all accounts, he's a very bright kid, high mental processing. Hopefully he can adjust. Yeah. And for me, Nick, it's less so like, I don't believe he could fit a vertical style offense. I mean, for starters, he threw the ball. He has incredible touch over the top. He, he sometimes he, his arm talent, you know, you'll see moments where it, it's not where you want it to be. The underthrow to Shepard comes to mind just from the last game of the season uh, against the Eagles. And you'll, you'll see those at moments. But for the most part, he's able to see it quickly and get it out with good touch over the top. And at Duke, there were a ton of great vertical passes that he made, of, a bunch that were just dropped, straight up awful drops by his terrible teammates. But that's not what concerns me. What concerns me more is how he's reading it, Nick, because when he has those half-field, high-low concepts, he's Shoney can do a good job of seeing that the vertical is the shot you want to take and, and throwing it quickly and getting rid of the ball quickly. And that's kind of what I think you need to do when you're taking shots in the vertical passing game if you're in that kind of offense. Now, if he comes over to a completely different offense like we talk about that's more designed to attack vertically and in these ways, is it going to be a situation where at where some of the concerns I'll, – I'll, I'll break it down like this, Nick. At times in his rookie season – Jones struggled when he held on to the football too long, waiting for things to develop. Is that going to be a bigger issue in an offense that is predicated on plays that take longer to develop? It, I mean, it could be because you've got to just think that this is a vertical passing offense. So there's going to be – I mean, Don Coryell offenses have a lot of two vertical routes. So you'll have right. the one and then the backside receiver – going vertical to kind of stretch that defense and then open up a deep horizontal cross. And that deep horizontal cross kind of takes some time as well. So that's definitely a concern when it comes to just holding on to the football just a little bit too long and maybe second-guessing yourself and not being as decisive as some of these top-level quarterbacks are. And this is just his second year learning a whole new offense. That's the big thing about it. It's his second year. That's great. But this is a whole new offense. So it's basically like learning a whole new language. So that's definitely something where I could see him starting out maybe a little slow this season. Let's hope that uh, he can kind of put it all together. And I think bringing in Jason Garrett, someone who can teach, teach the uh, – he's not just a presenter, as Joe Judge said. He's bringing in teachers. And Jason Garrett, by all accounts, seems like he's one of those teaching kind of coaches, can kind of inculcate that into, into Daniel Jones and allow him to thrive in this system. But it might be a slow start. Yep, no doubt about it. And listen, these concerns aren't aren't like I'm not I'm not calling the alarm and and saying you know the it's going to be terrible. I'm just kind of giving fans an idea that listen, this is going to be a lot to ask of a of a second year quarterback to completely change what he's done really his whole career because a Duke a Duke the Duke offense he ran was in ways very similar. And so I'm just hoping that what we saw in 09 kind of with Garrett, where it was kind of his best season coordinated offense, they used a lot of pre-snap motion. And I know recently Garrett kind of had like a, he, he spoke with, I believe it was with giants.com. I, I read the article 
yesterday, so I'm not quite sure, but he talked about how he wants to use motion in his backfield and get pre-snap motion, things like that, back into the offense. And as long as he can evolve in those ways and use some RPO, because again, Jones did a really good job with the RPO in his first season and with and with his own read option. So it's like, as long as he can understand, listen, Jones is good at these things. They need to be a part of my offense, even if they're not the basis of my offense, it should be fine. But there is going to be some transition here uh, for Jones, and it could lead to a slow start. Hopefully, that's not the case. But this is not just apples to apples. It's not. He's not. It's not like going from Shermer's offense to Jay Gruden's offense. It's really going to be quite different for him. So we'll see how it plays out, Nick. But anything else on Jason Garrett before we move on? No, nah, I mean I feel like we uh, hit it. I just hope that uh, he can get back to his roots of being an offensive play caller and uh, bring out the best in Daniel. But we'll see. Yep. And the Giants have made some other moves recently, so let's go over those. They have decided to retain special teams coordinator Thomas McGahey, retain wide receivers coach Tyke Tolbert. Uh, they, the report, at least reportedly, they hired Burton Burns, the Alabama. Uh, he's coached with Nick Saban for years, Alabama running backs coach. He's now going to coach the Giants running backs. I'm pretty excited about that one. And then the one that intrigues me the most is Jerry Shaplinski, the, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the quarterbacks coach who's you know, worked with a lot of really good quarterbacks and, and he is getting he's gotten a lot of praise from quarterbacks he's worked with in the past. Anyone anything specifically on any of these coaches you wanted to dive into or, or that intrigues you? I mean, I love the fact that the Giants retained Tolbert and McGahee. Those are two coaches that we brought up that we wanted them to retain. And Joe Judge interviewed, went through the whole interview process like both of them were all about. They definitely showed signs of progression from just being under Shermer, the things that we saw these two coaches and their players do, i.e. Darius Slayton and the special teams definitely has been a lot better under McGahee as well. So I'm glad that they retain him. As for Shaplinski, which I believe we are saying correctly, I mean, he was with New England as an offensive assistant and then assistant quarterbacks coach, helped develop Jacoby Brissett, helped develop Jimmy Garoppolo a little bit. That's definitely something that is well is good for him. And I, I like the hire from everything I hear. Obviously, it's kind of hard to quantify it all, but there's one thing that just kind of like popped in my head and it's like he was the assistant quarterbacks coach for the Miami Dolphins last year. They had Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen didn't work out. Is that something that you can look at and say it's a concern? Maybe you can say a little bit, but I wouldn't put too much stock into it. I mean, there's just so many other variables that go into it and maybe Rosen just isn't mentally there or he just hasn't adapted well. So that's one, I guess, little thing that you can kind of think of, but definitely not something just to knock the higher way too many variables that we just do not know about. But from everything I hear about Shuplinski is it's been positive. Now, a lot of, a lot of things that you hear these around this time of year are positive. So let's keep that into perspective as well. Not from trolls on Twitter. I'm just talking about just from other coaches talking about people that they are friends with and people that they have worked with. And as for Burton Burns, I mean, he was with Alabama for what, 10 years or something along those lines. And I think he's been out of coaching for a little bit from what I've read. So hopefully he can kind of just get right back into the groove. He's coached many great Alabama running backs dating back from 07, 2017 is what I see. And uh, I think that uh, he can hopefully work with uh, Saquon Barkley, which is somebody that he's probably used to working with when it comes to the fact that he had five-star recruits at Alabama for how long. So he's used to working with that level of talent, and uh, we'll see. But it's kind of hard to just jump in on it because I don't really know too much about the guy. Yeah, no doubt. And we'll we'll, we'll have more on that. But again, for, for that position, it's kind of hard to really <laughs> – dictate what what you know what we're looking for what would make a coach really good or bad I mean they've had great running backs come out of Bama he coached Derrick Henry while he was there but you know Derrick Henry is also an absolute freak of of nature and and so I don't know exactly what what role he played there 
Um, and obviously Henry's breakout in the NFL, but it is what it is. I think it's overall good hire to get anybody from that saving staff. Um, a couple position position coaches still need to be hired. They need an offensive line coach. We both want them to pay up for Callahan. Obviously, there there's been um, I mean, and then there's been you know the tight ends coach. They lost Wanda Wells, so we're going to see what happens there as well because that's a position that certainly has young players who still need to be developed. Um, but on that note, Nick, uh, anything else before we dive into some questions from the listeners? Now nah, let's tackle these questions. All right, here we go. Uh, you want to start us off, Nick? Yeah. Ol Yepper asks, what is the ideal situation to patch up the offensive line this offseason with the holes at center and right tackle? Yes, yeah, so I'll start, Nick, and my, my ideal situation might be different than yours. I'm a big believer that salary cap is for the most – salary cap trouble, let's call it, is for the most part a complete myth. Um, since I've started covering this team and pretty much all NFL teams – the Giants have never been in salary cap trouble, and when teams are, they get out of it really quickly. It's really easy to maneuver the numbers to get under. And in addition to that, you have several teams, probably around half the NFL, who finish each each offseason with $50 million in cap space or more. Just They're not spending it. Um, the Giants tend to spend all the way up to the cap, which is smart. It gives you the best chance to win. The Giants have a rookie quarterback on his rookie contract for another three years. It's time to spend. The Giants have 80 million in cap space. It's time to spend. Don't worry about like, you know, for so for me, long story short, I want them to spend up for a right tackle. There's two good ones on the market, Conklin and Bulaga. Bulaga's injury history scares me a little. I think they should pay up for Conklin. I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about Nate Solder's contract. I'm not worried about another Nate Solder. The Nate Solder contract is doing nothing right now to prevent the Giants from doing anything else. It literally is not. Does it hurt them if they wanted to go sign a left tackle? Sure. But guess what? There's not ever going to be a left tackle that's great, that's going to hit the market, that they're going to be like, oh, my God, we can't sign him because we're still paying Nate Solder. No, there's no left tackles that hit the market, but there is a couple right tackles, especially this season. And Conklin is a guy who's really starting to come to his own. Former first-round pick, hasn't always been great in his career, but just 20, I believe just 26 years old, Nick, and having the best season of his career right now with the Titans. And if the Giants do want to bring – a power running scheme, I think will be a great fit for them with Barkley to play that to be that anchor. So for me, what I would do is I'd attack right tackle in free agency and I'd look to the center position in the draft with likely that second or third round pick of Beatas is there from Wisconsin in the second round. I wouldn't be opposed to getting him in there. Um, just like the Saints did, they, you know, they really shored up that center position in the draft last season. Um, so for me, I would probably look to and, and by the way, the centers on the free agent market are really dry this, this year. There's not really any intriguing centers for me on that free agent market. So that's kind of how I tackle it. How about you, Nick? I mean, I have a similar mindset. I like Jack Conklin. And going back to that draft, the Giants reportedly were all over Jack Conklin. And right. everybody knew it. So the Titans obviously uh, did what they had to do to acquire him. Same with Leonard Floyd and the Bears did what they had to do to acquire him. But you know what? That was many moons ago. But yeah, I think Jack Conklin and getting a center – uh, through the draft, whether that is second, third round, something along those lines. You can even find somebody even a little later. You don't necessarily want to because Jalapio with his injury, you don't know if he's going to be back, even though you're trying to look to upgrade on that position anyways. But uh, yeah, I would think that you kind of nailed it there. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's an aggressive plan, Nick, but and Ole Eppard for you who asked the question, but that's how I would do it. They have so much cat space. Don't worry about what you're paying Solder. It's not a big deal. That money's going to come off the books anyway soon, and it really isn't a big deal. It's overrated how, you know, the cap, the whole cap thing to me is very overrated. Spend the money. Don't worry about it. It's not, 
There's just <laughs> tell me a time when the Cowboys or Saints or even the Giants have been in this cap trouble. If you can come up with one time, then I'll say, okay, maybe we'll save the money for whatever reason. It doesn't really, I, I can't understand it. So uh, I'm also on. not, yeah, I'm also not opposed to bringing Remmers back on a one year sure. deal. Try, try not to maybe start him, but just have him on this roster. Cause I feel like, like he gets a lot of bad rap, but he wasn't terrible on the film for what we all expected. You know, he was healthy relatively and he, kind of did his job to at a solid adequate to solid level yeah so. i agree with you i thought remmers overall was 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 not bad by any means really solid player especially for the price they paid for him exactly so con dunn asks what do you like most about what garrett would bring to our current personnel okay that's an interesting one i think you know we kind of touched on it a little earlier but what i like most is the, the possibility of having a vertical threat from the tight end position with a guy like Evan Ingram, who seems to perfectly fit it. The guy ran a 4-4-1. We've seen his speed on the field when healthy. So what I like most is the potential for the tight end position. Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what I feel. Just maximizing Barkley, maximizing Ingram. Bowman Klein asks, meet, uh, basically, the way he worded it is a little weird, are two first rounds greater than Simmons? Meaning, should the Giants trade back even if it puts Simmons' pick in jeopardy? Ooh, that's a good one because obviously, as Bowman has probably realized, I'm super high on Isaiah Simmons. I'm getting to the point where, you know, I, I got a lot more to do, but I think there's a chance that he might be the best player in this draft, not a quarterback, not named Chase Young. So if that's the case, it would be tough for me, but I believe the Giants should, and, and pretty much for the rest of this franchise's history, should always be looking to trade back. And I, yes, I would take two first round picks, even if it meant potentially losing Simmons because uh, this team needs them. When you take a first-round pick, you get him on the rookie contract for five years. It's an amazing thing to have, so I would do it. Nick, do you see that differently? Uh, I I would do it as well, but my thing is I think the Giants could get more because the way this draft is looking to kind of materialize is Burrow's going to be off the board. Tua will probably be off the board before the Giants pick, but that's still kind of up in the air. And then it comes down to Herbert, and you have three teams that may be bidding against each other for Herbert. If Herbert goes down in the Senior Bowl and absolutely kills the Senior Bowl, that's going to be excellent for the New York Giants. The Giants can kind of pit those three teams who are looking for a quarterback against each other. Doesn't mean they're all going to be in love with Herbert, but if they are, they can kind of get the highest bidder, and they'll probably get more than just one extra first-round pick other than the swap. So, yeah, I think I would uh, definitely have to explore that with all the holes on the Giants roster, and hopefully the Giants could fall back like two or three picks and then still secure Simmons, but yet to be seen. And that's a great point you make there, Nick, because listen, if Her Herbert, the fact that Herbert's going to the Senior Bowl can only help the Giants. We've seen teams, uh, and the New York Giants, fall in love with quarterbacks at the Senior Bowl, uh, and they're not the only ones. So if Herbert just completely outplays the competition there, um, he that could be a really good thing for the Giants in this draft. Yeah, it could be excellent, man. Just then you pit those three teams against each other, man. Oof, that'd be lovely. Are you Dan and Nick, which is me, opposed to draft two tackles and a center? In this draft and leaning on free agency to solidify the defense, there's no one – maybe this was Bowman that asked this because there was no name there. Yep. This is another question from Bowman, and I think what he's saying here is what he means by drafting two jack on the center. He means early. He doesn't mean a fifth round or a fourth round or sixth, whatever. Right. He means using those first few picks, uh, first, second, third round. The third, obviously, they traded for Leonard, but they have a supplemental coming like 40 picks later after what they should have had in the third. And on that note – Yes, I am opposed to it. I think that this team just used back-to-back -back 
top six picks on the offensive side of the ball. It's time to invest in that defense. I think free agency can only really be done short term, like the Packers did it this offseason when they have all the other pieces and they just need a boost from that defense and they need to be immediate. I think as we move forward and as Aaron Rodgers ages and as that defense kind of ages, that those picks will all kind of be in kind of in the same sense of how that whole class with Janoris Jenkins, Damon Harrison, Olivier Vernon played out for the Giants, you know, two players traded, one player cut. It's kind of how that's going to end up for that Packers class, I'm sure, in the end. That's just kind of how free agency goes. You can you can use it in spots, like I said, but not for this team. I don't believe this Giants team. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want them to go out and maybe spend on Joe Schobert or Littleton or some of these linebackers or some of these players. You know, even Devin McCourty intrigues me, and I know he's older, but I don't care. He's a deep half safety that they can't find anywhere else. So it doesn't mean I don't want them to spend. Like I said, I'm a big believer in spending that cap. Spend, spend, spend. Who cares? doesn't matter. But – I don't think that's the way they can rebuild the defense to where they want it to be for the future. I think they do need to spend personally. I believe they need to spend that first pick on a defensive player. Yeah. You got to look at teams like the 49ers, how many first round picks they invested into that defense. That is just absolutely balling right now. I mean, I think the giants need to kind of replicate that and bring in a lot of first round talent to this defense, which they did last year. They got Dexter Lawrence. They got Deandre Baker. Now just keep adding. And one thing I will say about free agency, I think you should add a couple free agents to that defense that are veterans, true professionals, someone like McCourty, someone like Antoine Bethea, who might not be back this year. So I um I would like for that to uh, also happen, just bringing some vets to this defense to help kind of keep them all together with the younger coaching staff and everything like that, and just good, positive locker room dudes. Yep, no doubt about it. And on that note, guys, thank you again for tuning in. This has been the Big Blue Banter Podcast. We will join you again shortly. Uh, this offseason, we've got some big things planned, some 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 things coming up. And, at, and, and as for Nick, he's actually got something interesting coming up. So, Nick, tell him where you're going to be this week. Oh, yeah, I will be in Mobile, Alabama at the Senior Bowl, do the practices, interviewing with the players, talking to people. I usually ask I usually ask like really uh, cool questions like, um, you know, everyone's talking about football stuff with these guys. The guys are all uptight. I usually go up to them and I ask them who their favorite mythical creature is. You know, if they were a candy bar, what candy bar would they be? I ask them a lot of questions like that and uh, you'll break them down a little bit. They start smiling, things along those lines. So in the la- uh, last couple of years when I was doing it for the quote-unquote press or whatever that's what i was doing and uh, got a lot of cool answers from guys like rashad penny james washington dudes like that so it was a lot of fun no doubt and we got from the cbs side we're gonna have ryan wilson chris Chapasso, a lot of guys down there and i've been leaning on them for some insight so hopefully i'll come back to you guys with a lot of insight from the senior bowl on potential players that could be fits with the giants we're gonna start to hear this week about players they're interested in at the Senior Bowl. That has been a big event for this new Giants or for the Dave Gettleman Giants regime, and I think it will continue to be. So on that note, everybody, have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll speak to you soon. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, 
It's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.